We're going to continue with Revelation. We are in chapter 10, and in this chapter we get an interlude before the wrath of God. Remember we went through the six trumpet calls, and we're given a clue that this is going to be the case if we just read what we read last time we met in chapter 9. It says, But the rest of mankind, those not killed by these plagues, did not repent and turn away from their works of their hands. They would not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. They did not repent and turn away from their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their stealing. And so the trumpet calls failed to bring mankind to repentance. And these words signal an ending of the trumpet calls of the previous chapters, and we are right in between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And we have this interlude, and that interlude is going to continue through chapters 12 through 14. And it functions really as the heart of the message of the book of Revelation. And it's sandwiched between the trumpets and the bowls of God's wrath. And we should understand that these chapters give us really more information about the time that we just covered, what's going on during these trumpet calls. These are things that are taking place during these trumpet blasts. Another feature of these chapters is they may be some of the hardest chapters to understand in the book. And we're going to see that already in the first four verses. We're going to have mystery, mystery, mystery. But it says this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. And so we have an angel, and it looks very much like the Messiah. He's described very much like what we would think of the Messiah. But this angel is actually coming in the authority of the Messiah. He has a rainbow on his head symbolizing a crown. He has a scroll which we'll look at in a moment. But he plants his feet in the sea and on the land to show that he has authority over both. And you might want to think of this like this, of a gladiator who had just won and he has his foot on the neck of his adversary. The sea, according to the book of Enoch and the Tanakh, is the domain of Leviathan, a ten-headed beast, And remember, we looked at a passage a few weeks ago in Ezekiel where he was drugged out of the Nile and left in the desert. Only he was called Pharaoh then, not Leviathan. He has different names. Then we have another demon that's called Behemoth and Belial, and they're monsters of the land. And here what we're being told is they're defeated and the angel has his feet on the land and on the sea. And we see the thunders are present again. And this time there are seven, specifically seven voices of thunder. And we're told that what the thunder said is being sealed up. In other words, it's a prophecy that's not going to be revealed yet. And we find something very similar in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 8 and 9. It says, Now I heard 
but I did not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? And then he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. And so Daniel has some words spoken to him. They're not revealed and they're sealed up. And so we might assume that these are the same words that John hears. The voices of the seven thunders, and he's going to write it down for us, but then he's told not to write it down. And so we can determine that this is prophecy, and it has to be prophecy of what is yet to come in the next three and a half years. Verse 5 of chapter 10 says, Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven and swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God is complete, just as he declared to his servants the prophets. And so here again, we're seeing this authority that this angel has over the powers that be, so much so that he can swear by the powers that be that they shall be no longer. There will be no further delay until the end. The mystery of God is now about to be finished, as was declared by the prophets. And then in verse 8, The voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little scroll. And he tells me, take it and eat. It will be bitter in your stomach, but sweet as honey on your mouth. And so I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, my stomach was made bitter. And they tell me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And so John has this mysterious scroll given to him, the contents of which are not revealed. But it is sweet to the tongue and yet bitter in the stomach. And we might take this as a reference, the word of God being sweet. You know, when Jewish men read Torah to their children, they would take a little honey and put it on their tongue so to make the words sweet. And you also might remember that we have a song that we sing often, sweet as honey. So we find a scriptural reference to this in Psalm 19, verse 11. They are more desirable than gold, speaking of the words of God. They are more desirable than gold, yes, more than much gold. They are sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And we can also assume now that by eating the scroll, it symbolizes that the contents of the scroll are being internalized by John. He knows the contents, and the contents will be sweet, and we're going to see that in chapter 12. We're going to see some sweet things in chapter 12. And yet, it's going to be bitter also as we read on. Chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, Then a measuring rod like a staff was given to me, saying, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count those worshiping in it. But do not measure the count outside the temple, leave it out, because it has been given to the nations. They shall trample the holy city for 42 months. So we're being told here that there is a temple at this time. And this is kind of a key bit of information for us if we can understand what it means. And there's differing opinions as to what it means. 
There are several opinions. One of them, the first one, is that this is going to be some form of a temple once again built on Mount Moriah, as was the second temple. You know, we just returned from Israel, and for years the Temple Institute has been preparing the vessels for the next temple. They've prepared the altars, the golden menorah for the temple, as well as the altar of incense and, and a lot of the vessels. And so if the Temple Mount would become available, this could be a possibility. Also lending credibility to a real temple are the words of Daniel and Yeshua. First Daniel says in chapter 12, from the time that the daily burnt offering is taken away and an abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Happy is the one who keeps waiting and reaches 1,335 days. But you go your way till the end. You will rest and then at the end of days you will arise and receive your portion. And so Daniel speaks of a temple being built before the end and the daily offering ceasing. And Yeshua will speak of it as well in chapter 24, verse 14 and 15. It says, This good news of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And so when the good news is preached in all the nations, the end will come and we're going to see an abomination set up in the temple. So we can understand where this idea of a real temple comes from. However, there is another view. There's always another view, isn't there? The other view is that this refers to the people of God as the temple. And this idea rests heavily on this measuring rod that we see in the text. And counting the worshipers are all references to Jewish and non-Jewish believers being the temple of God. And the interesting thing about this idea is that the term for temple here is naos, and it refers to the most sacred part of the temple. Not the entire temple complex, but just the sacred part of the temple. And if that is what John meant, then the angel is being told to measure the inner parts of the temple where only a few could enter because of its holiness. And this would also make sense because the altar is there as well. And the instruction to count the worshipers. Now it speaks of measuring the temple and the altar, and I'm going to read Stern's commentary of what he thinks about it. He doesn't go with a real temple, but he says this. Measuring symbolizes reserving a city for either preservation or for destruction, suggesting that Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish nation, and therefore a figure of the Jewish people, deserves judgment and destruction, but that its destiny is repenting and being preserved. And so Stern suggests that this is the Jewish people. Jerusalem refers to the Jewish people oftentimes in Scripture. It just means the Jewish people. However, there are others who suggest that it is the followers of Messiah. And I'm going to read from the book of Enoch because this is partially where this comes from, this understanding. Remember, Enoch is not Scripture, but it can tell us what possibly came to John's mind when he heard this measuring line. And it reads this way. And I saw in those days how long cords were given to these angels, and they took to themselves wings and flew. And they went towards the north. And I asked the angel, saying unto him, 
Why have those angels taken cords and gone off? And he said unto me, They have gone to measure. These shall bring the measures of the righteous and of the ropes of the righteous to the righteous, that they may stay themselves on the name of the Lord of the spirits forever and ever. The elect shall begin to dwell with the elect, and these measures shall reveal all the secrets of the depths of the earth, and they may return and stay themselves on the day of the elect one. None shall be destroyed before the Lord of the spirits, and none shall be destroyed. Okay, so that gives us kind of the same idea. But here's the main thing. You know, we're told over and over in Scripture that the believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that the Ruach Elohim dwells among you? And so what I'm trying to get across is there's some merit to all of these opinions. However, if it were me, the way it's worded, I would tend to side with people of God as the temple or some combination thereof. Verse 3 says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, two witnesses, or we could say two martyrs, because it's the same word in the Greek. And we get some timing that these two are going to prophesy for 1260 days. That's three and a half years. And again, this tells us that we're adding information to what we've already covered. They're going to prophesy for this first three and a half years of the time of Jacob's trouble. Verse 4 says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, if you want to get some more understanding of who these are, we need to go to Zechariah chapter 4, verse 8 through 14, and it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to me, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you, who despises the day of small things. Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which reign throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches besides the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? And he replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of the earth. And so these are the witnesses, and I believe that they are Moses and Elijah. And I'll show you that in a moment after we read a few more verses here. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. Okay, and... If we want to identify the fire that comes out of their mouths, we need to go to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14, and it says this, Therefore this is what the Lord God Almighty says, Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth like a fire, and these people, the wood it consumes. And so fire that comes from their mouths is the word of God. And they're going to prophesy, as I said earlier, I think, they're going to prophesy these events that have been happening over the first three and a half years, they're going to stand in the temple courts if it's an actual temple, or they're going to stand in the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to prophesy everything that's going to happen to the world during these first three and a half years. 
And so they'll witness the true king of the world. They're going to be witnesses of the Messiah. And they will call down all of this trouble that has happened over the first three and a half years. Let's go back to Revelation. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They also have the power to turn waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Okay, so now we can compare these things a couple of ways. First, they help us understand who they are. These words help us understand who they are. Who was the one who shut up the heavens, the skies, so that it didn't rain? was Elijah. And who was the one who turned water into blood? Moses. You see, those are the witnesses. The two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And now folks argue, how can that be? Because Moses died. And it's appointed that a man live once, die once. But if we look at Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, we can figure this whole thing out. You know, Elijah had to precede the coming of the Messiah. And yet Elijah didn't come. He was taken to heaven, and I assume because he didn't die, he had to be transformed, as Paul tells us, or changed, as Paul tells us. We all must be. However, then Yeshua comes, and he tells us that John the Baptist, Yochanan the Immerser, was the Elijah who was to come. So what's the deal? Here's my opinion. These men are not going to be the actual Elijah and Moses, but they're going to come in the power and the anointing and the mission of Moses and Elijah, just as Yochanan the Immerser came in the anointing of Elijah. So those first six trumpets are going to happen. And as I said, these two men are going to be standing and they're going to be prophesying. And if we take this to modern times, we can say they're going to be on NBC, CBS, calling down all of these things that are going to happen, these disasters. And here's how we know that. Because they're so loved by the world that this is said of them. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast comes from the abyss, will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. So after they've called on all of these plagues, the beasts from the abyss that we read about the last time we met, and those demons of the beast, they're released from the abyss, and they slay the two prophets of God. And we can be reasonably sure that the beast is Satan, but these things are going to happen midway through what are called the birth pangs, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Now the reason we know that these two have been calling down the shots is, is in verse 10. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So think back to the last few weeks when we were talking about the trumpet blast, how the plagues had tormented and caused misery to the people on the earth that they've endured all of this. And these people, these guys have been calling them down. Famine out of the mouths of these two. Plagues out of the mouths of these two. Disease and death of one-third of the earth's population out of the mouths of these two. And so I'm afraid they're not very popular. <laughs> In fact, they're not popular at all. Verse 11. 
But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. So bad news for those rejoicing because God resurrects them right before their very eyes. Right on CNN, CBS, NBC, Fox News, right before everybody's eyes. I told you I would give you some opinions on pre-trib and so forth. Many look at their resurrection and have come to the opinion that this is where the righteous are caught away. Because we're about to hear the seventh trumpet sound. And it's the last of the seven trumpets. And so this is where they think believers are caught away midway through the birth pangs or the time of Jacob's trouble. So I'm sure you've all heard of mid-trib, and this is where it comes from. They look at the seventh trump as the last trump spoken of by Paul. And uh, also because the following chapters really deal with Israel, as we're going to see. And the Gentiles really aren't a part of the text in the next few chapters. Verse 13, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe is past and the third woe is coming. And so there's an earthquake in Jerusalem because that's what we're talking about. There's an earthquake in Jerusalem and 7,000 people are killed. You know, we just had an earthquake and not far from Jerusalem. In fact, this week, there was an earthquake in Lebanon that was felt in Jerusalem. But it causes 7,000 people to die. And we don't know much about who these 7,000 people are. They, it doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us is very important. It says that it caused the people to repent. Caused the people to repent. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And so the rule of God is being established in the earth at this point, and we're going to get in, in the next few verses another picture of what's going on in the heavenlies, which is very mysterious. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who revere your name, both small and great and for destroying those who destroyed the earth. You know, when you read this, and you read some of the prayers of the temple, which you can find in the Sidori, you're going to find that it reads, a lot of these things read the same. And it's not surprising, because Romans 9.4 tells us that the temple service was given by God. Chronicles tells us that God gave the temple services to David. And so just as the tabernacle was a copy of what is in heaven, so too is the service because it was given by God. And I really take joy in the liturgy because it's so close to what we read of heavenly things. Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was open and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great 
hailstorm. And so what we're seeing here is some of the same things we see whenever God comes. We saw pretty much the same things at Mount Sinai. And we get something else here, though. The temple is opened, and you can see the Ark of the Covenant. And remember what the Ark of the Covenant actually is? What was it on earth? It was where God dwelled. His spirit dwelled there like a beam of light. And so we're seeing the throne of God, only this time it's not the earthly tabernacle. It's in heaven. And what would have come to John's mind is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that's about what we're going to see happen now. And we see differing aspects of the rule of God here. We see the lightning, the thunder, the earthquakes, all the things that are associated with his rule coming into the earth. And we're going to continue with chapter 12 next week, but I want to take the last bit of this message and introduce you to a couple of names for this seven-year period of time because this seven-year period of time is not the tribulation of the righteous. And so I want to look at what Jewish people would have thought, what they think today even. If you went to an Orthodox Jew today, or if you went to a Jew in John's day, I'm not talking about John because he's receiving the vision, and said, I want to talk to you about the tribulation that's about to come. They would say, what? (laughs) But if you said, I want to talk to you about the time of Jacob's trouble, or can we speak about the birth pangs of the Messiah? They would begin talking about just exactly what we're reading here. And we can see this in a couple of traditions, and I'll start with this one. Abiyah Asrabah, What is the reason for your not wishing to see him? In other words, the him is the Messiah. Should you say because of the birth pangs preceding the Messiah's coming? Have we not been taught? Rabbi Eliezer, disciples asked him, what should one do to be spared the pangs of the Messiah? He answered, let him engage in the study of Torah and good deeds. I'm going to read one more. The birth pangs of the Messiah in general. The intertestamental literature depicts a period preceding the coming of the Messiah as one of terrible distress, plagues and famine, floods and earthquakes, wars, revolutions, accompanied by such cosmic disturbances as the darkening of the sun, the moon, and the falling of the stars from the sky. Now, this is just exactly what we've been reading about, right? Only these guys probably never read the book of Revelation in their life. So... In part, these ideas were derived from contemporary events such as dispersion and persecutions suffered by the people of Israel and in part from the descriptions of the day of the Lord found in the writings of the earlier prophets. The purpose of these terrifying pictures was to encourage the faithful in Israel to bear their afflictions patiently as God's will for them. For only when the cup of evil was filled to the brim would the Messiah come and bring salvation. These sufferings, therefore, are commonly called the pangs of the Messiah. In Hebrew, Hevelo Shel Mashiach. Meaning that Israel, like a mother, was to bring forth the Messiah in the pangs of childbirth. And uh, we're going to see some more of that as we read on. But on the basis of Ezekiel 38, 1 through 39, 20, we have some pre-Messianic wars are presented there as the Lord's fighting against Gog and Magog symbols of powers of evil in the world and the leader of these evil forces being Hasatan, Belial, Belhamoth, Leviathan. All of those things are his name and I think that when we start to look at these things we're going to see it's more of a spiritual war than a military war. 
So the time we're talking about to a Jewish person would be called Hevilo Shel Mashiach, the birth pangs of the Messiah, or the time of Jacob's troubles. Next week we'll go into chapter 12.